Today, if you have a Bible, let's open up to Mark chapter 4. As really, this to me, at first I'm like, well, everybody's studied this already and it's... Uh, you know, it almost is so familiar that in one sense you might not get excited about it. But as I started reading it, I realized in a fresh way that this is one of the richest scriptures, passages, Bible texts in the whole Bible. And so I encourage you, uh, open up your heart, uh, put your listening ears on. And I believe that if we do, God is going to really teach us something so important. Because you read in verse 35, it says on the same day, when, when evening had come, he said to them, let us cross over to the other side. Now when they had left the multitude, they took him along in the boat as he was, and other little boats were also with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves beat into the boat so that it was already filling. But he was in the stern asleep on a pillow. And they awoke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Then he arose and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. But he said to them, Why are you so fearful? How is it that you have no faith? And then they feared exceedingly and said to one another, Who can this be that even the wind and the sea obey him? Tremendous account of the power of Jesus Christ, of the person of Jesus Christ, and so important to us. I don't know if you guys, any of you hear, ever heard of that uh, guy named Gail Irwin? Just out of curiosity, a few of you have. He shared a true story of a time when he was in Israel sailing the same Sea of Galilee with a tour group and suddenly the rain fell hard, the wind began to blow and the waves beat against them vigorously and they were there in the middle of the sea. And as they were there in the middle of the storm, a young man on the boat who was part of the tour, he, he thought to himself, what would Jesus do in a situation like this? And so... You know what he did? He stood up in front of everyone and rebuked the storm, just like Jesus did. He yelled out, peace, be still. Guess what happened? <laughs> the rain, the wind, and the waves just kept coming. <laughs> and not only that, the engine stopped and the boat broke down. <laughs> it's a true story, and it's really ironic when you think it through, you know. I mean, results will vary depending on who you are. Right? I mean, what a contrast between what God can do versus what man can do. And we must never forget that. You know, this is one of the most important accounts in all of Scripture because one of the things that we find in life is that sooner or later, even as Christians, we will be caught in a storm. You know, maybe you're even finding yourself today in the storms of life and the rain is falling, the wind is blowing and the waves are beating you down and from a human perspective, it looks like you're sinking. It just feels like you're sinking. You know, whether you're anticipating the storm or whether you're participating in it now, today I pray that we would take God's word to heart and uh, I'm going to give you guys eight things uh, to think about and not necessarily, 
you know, profound. But first of all, we see the, the plan there in verse 35. It says, On the same day when evening had come, he said to them, Let us cross over to the other side. Now, on the same day is in reference to the day Jesus spoke the parables to the people. We've been studying that. You know, when you harmonize the Gospels, Luke 8, Matthew 8, we find that after Jesus spoke the parables, he then taught the disciples privately. The day went forward and then he set forth on his journey. Now, notice again, though, the plan, Jesus' words, let us cross over to the other side. And you need to listen very carefully. It's so important that we listen to the Lord very, very carefully. Because, you know, really, when you look at that, woven within His words uh, are a promise. He said to them, we are going to the other side. See, and what happens sometimes is we're not listening really to the words from the lips of our Lord, or we forget them. That's why it's so important that we listen with our, all of our heart, that we pay attention to His Word. He said, we're going to the other side. He didn't necessarily say it was going to be smooth sailing, but I'll tell you what, He did promise a safe arrival. And so for us, I think it's important to listen, and then when we get that promise, to cling to it with all of our heart, because it will carry us when we go through the difficulties of life. Because at the end of the day, I love what Warren Wiersbe said. He said, we don't live on explanations. We live on promises. A lot of times we want God to explain things, and why this, and, and all that kind of stuff. And God says, I don't need to explain things to you. All I, all I need to tell you is uh, that I'm with you, that I love you, that I died for you, that you know, you're going to go to heaven one day, and so we... We cling to the promises. We see God's plan, but then secondly, we actually see man's pride. Look at verse 36. Now when they had left the multitude, they took him along in the boat as he was, and other little boats were also with him. You know, there's a subtle twisting of the story in Mark's account as opposed to the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, in Matthew chapter 8, verse 23, it says, Now when he, Jesus, got into a boat, his disciples followed him. See, they were following him according to Matthew. As a matter of fact, we kind of see how God's in charge. There in verse 35, Jesus is in charge. He says, Let us cross over to the other side. And so Christ is giving the command. They are following him. But Mark here, he kind of puts a different spin on it. He received, we believe, information from Peter. And in reading this, it makes it sound like Jesus is following them. Notice again there in verse 38, I mean 36, now when they had left the multitude, they took him along in the boat as he was. I mean, it's like, yeah, we're just going to, Jesus, you're not in charge now. You know, we're just going to take you along for the ride, so to speak, you know? And, and what happened was this, and commentators, teachers, they kind of point this out. It's real subtle, but you see it so clearly. What happened was the experienced fishermen figured that they would now take over, right? 
After all, Jesus is a preacher and Jesus is a teacher and carpenter by trade and he can teach from a boat, yeah, but he doesn't know how to sail a boat. That's our department. So from this point forward, we will take charge. We don't really desperately need him now. And as we'll see, this is a very dangerous place to be, to think that we can do anything without him or to somehow think that we can even lead the Lord. We must never come to a place where in our life we stop following Him every single step of our life. He must always be in charge. He must always lead us. We must never take over. We don't just take Jesus along for the ride. No, He leads the way. But what can happen so many times when we get experience or when we get a few you know, years under our belt or whatever the case may be in certain areas of our life, I don't need the Lord for that. And that's when we run into to big problems. We don't just take Jesus along, He takes us along. And it's vital for us to know this. You know, John, who was a fisherman, eventually learned this. And that's why he wrote in John 15, 5, uh, he said, Without me, you can do nothing. That's what Jesus said. John wrote it. John knew it. Nothing. What can you do apart from the Lord? Nothing. You can't take your next breath without Jesus. Nothing. And that's why it's so important that we live our life in light of that truth. I'll, I'll, I'll be honest with you, and I'm going to share something with you guys, and I hope you don't take it as me uh, presenting myself as some spiritual guy, because I'm not. But uh, the other day I was laying down laminate flooring in our house. And uh, I don't know how many of you here have ever done that. You lay down laminate floor. And, uh, you know, bottom line is this. I'm not, I'm not really uh, a good, what's it, mechanically inclined. I'm not really good at stuff like that. And so I can do it, you know, like I can do drywall or whatever, framing, laying down laminate floor. The problem is it just takes me ten times longer. That's the problem, man. You know, Gabe and, and his helper and some of the guys came over one time and they just knocked it off in like two hours and it takes me 24 hours, you know. And so anyways, but, but you know, by the grace of God, I, I can do it. But as I'm laying down the laminate floor, I don't know if you guys know how it works, but every single piece you lay down, it has to be put in properly. It has to be, you know, put in uh, when there's no space in between them and you just do it just right. And I am so bad at stuff like this that for every single plank I put down, I said, thank you, Jesus. Every single step of the way. And it's not because, you know, I'm not trying to say that to you guys. Oh, he's so spiritual. Absolutely not. It's just I am thoroughly aware of the fact that without him, I can do nothing. And, and my life, our life, is like that. I mean, so many times we forget to thank Him. We forget that without Him we can do nothing. We can be like these fishermen. Okay, you preach, you teach, you do miracles, you're a carpenter by trade, but you don't know how to run a boat. Now I'll take over. And the Lord just said, oh, no. And so in looking at this, we see the pride begin to, you know, well up. Even for me, I'll be honest with you, and I don't, not that I'm counting, but man, I've taught a lot of studies over the years. And, you know, being a senior pastor since uh, 2002 and teaching, you know, two, three, four times a week, man, thousands of sermons. But I can never do a sermon or speak a word 
without Jesus. So we have to maintain that. We have to be careful that we don't come to a place where, you know, the pride sets in. I don't need you, Jesus. That's where they unfortunately had come. We need him desperately. And so we need to guard ourselves against the pride of ever taking charge of our own life. And just as a quick side note, it's interesting because the Lord's going to have to deal with their pride and other lives are affected by this because it's not just the disciples. Notice it says right there that there were other little boats that were with him. Who knows? Maybe there were kids in those boats. We affect people. We had to think about that. And so we see the plan of God followed by the pride of men which leads to a problem. The third point is the problem there in verse 37, and a great windstorm arose, and the waves beat into the boat so that it was already filling. And so now the, the storm strikes. And I, you know, like I said, I don't know if you're in a storm. Um, I, I think living in a fallen world, we do have storms rather frequently and you know, I don't know where you guys are, but then eventually the storms will strike. And we know in, in Matthew's account, in chapter 8, verse 24, he uses the Greek word for earthquake. Interesting, you know. I mean, maybe there was a sudden tsunami. Uh, he also tells us that the boat was covered with waves. Luke chapter 8, verse 23 says they were filling with water and were in jeopardy. And that meaning that, you know, it looked like, man, it was very dangerous and you know, looking at the storm, some say, well, it was probably just a natural phenomenon. Others attribute it to demonic uh, works. Uh, one writer said, the lake lies between high hills, which from a deep trough, and thus is subject to sudden storms, which at times develop a horrific fury as they roar down upon the sea. All we know is this, they're in the middle of a perfect storm, right? And, you know, that's life. I wish I could tell you that you will never experience that, but I would be lying to you. And things will happen, and people will suffer and die, and we will go through this fallen world. Storms will strike. And you got to know that. You know, we're going to see as we go through our study today, however, that God will use those storms for good. And we're going to see and discover the efficiency of God that he accomplishes so many things simultaneously through those difficulties. There are a number of reasons they are experiencing these storms, you know. But, but one of the reasons, believe it or not, is because of their obedience. You know, Jesus gave the command, let us cross over to the other side. And they obeyed him. You know, when you find yourself in the storms of life, you can go to God and ask Him, you know, and He won't necessarily always give you the answers, but I think one thing He will deal with and He will reveal is whether or not you're going through the storm because of your obedience or disobedience. The disciples are in a storm because they obeyed Him. And many of you have suffered the storms of life because of your love for Jesus Christ. So we can't, you know, just say it's always bad. We know Jonah suffered the storm because of his disobedience. And that's not to condemn anybody. That's just to encourage us to live for the Lord. Because he loves you. But the storms, as we go through, 
they will be severe and challenging and very problematic situations. And that's why I love this text because the Lord teaches us so many things on what to do when we suffer the storms of life. And so we see the plan and then the pride and then the problem. But then fourthly, we see the peace. Look at verse 38. But he was in the stern asleep on a pillow. And I was thinking about that just as a quick side note. I was thinking, man, that must have been a really nice pillow, you know. <laughs> I don't know if you guys, uh, I have a bad pillow. I got to get a, a new pillow, man. It's, it, it needs help. But, you know, here's the Lord. I mean, how could Jesus actually be sleeping in the middle of such a storm? How? Think about that. You know, some attribute it to his humanity, and there are those times, I don't know if you've ever been there, where you are so tired that you could sleep through anything. Any of you guys ever sleep like that, you know? Sometimes our teenagers do, right? I remember when my kids were small, and they would fall asleep uh, somewhere other than their bed, and so... You know, as a dad, I had to pick them up, and it wasn't always a gentle journey. I'd pick them up, right, bump their head a couple of times, you know, <laughs> drop them and stuff. <laughs> but I would just trip out on how they would stay asleep through that type of journey, and I thank God for that, right? Well, I guess the explanation is they were tired, right? And so Jesus was experiencing some of that. Some attributed to his humanity. Others say, however, it's a lesson in tranquility or serenity. You know, because you look at that and it's like, what's the Lord trying to say? Lenski said, the peaceful sleep of Jesus is due to the perfect absence of fear in his heart and to his absolute trust in his Father's care. There is not a trace of fear. The absolute serenity of Jesus is astounding. I mean, it's, it's an example for us. Wow, look at the way our Lord had such a perfect peace in the middle of such a terrible storm. And it's an example for us. You know, my heart goes out to those people who worry and fret and fear and lose faith and lose sleep because in all reality, at the end of the day, they just don't trust God. What did Job say? Though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. You know, I remember hearing a story uh, by Dr. David Jeremiah, and he was sharing a study and about a report of what worry does to us. You know, I don't know if you guys knew this or not, but worry is when we think and fear the worst is going to happen. We just, we just think the worst, right? Worry is uh, terrible. I, I found it fascinating, that the report that he gave to discover that only 2% of our fears ever actually happen. And so that means that 98% of what we're thinking about and worrying about will never happen. But here's the thing. Even though we don't actually experience those fears, it affects us physically it affects us emotionally and it affects us spiritually as if we actually did go through those things that we're worried about. So let's just say you worry about your children that 
you know, this is going to happen to them or that's going to happen to them. What happens when you do that and you start living life like that is that you get on that emotional roller coaster and it's the same roller coaster you would ride if it was actually happening, but it's not. See, fear affects you. It affects you and it will hurt you emotionally. Then it will affect you even physically. Ulcers, gray hairs, unnecessary wrinkles, lack of sleep and rest, which then takes its toll. And then all of that affects us and infects us spiritually. That's why when we go through those storms of life, we need to, to see the way our Savior slept, trusted in God. Lord, you're on the throne. Lord, you're in control. It ain't the devil and it ain't man. It's you. And I love you and I trust you. See, it's an example for us. We're way better off trusting God and getting our rest just like our Lord. You know, but as I share with you, this passage is so rich. Another angle that I believe we see here, as they sailed the sea, and, you know, we sail the sea in the storms of life, it, sometimes it almost seems like the Lord is sleeping. You know, you're in the, in, in the boat, and, and you're going through the troubles of life, and, you know, you just it seems like the Lord's not answering your prayers or your cries. I don't know if you've ever felt that way, but here's the thing, and I think there is something to learn from this. Not that God ever sleeps or slumbers, because He never does. But there are many scriptures where we are encouraged to pray in such a way that we awaken Him. Not that He sleeps, He doesn't sleep. But I tell you what, sometimes our prayers are so anemic, and they are so faithless, that it's as if we won't, you know, pray enough to awaken the Almighty to move on our behalf. You know, and there is something about what they do here that's good. I mean, they could have just let the boat go down and sink, but we see and we'll see as we go through that they eventually do approach the Lord, and we need to do that as well. You know, Job chapter 8, verse 5 and 6, it says, If you would earnestly seek God and make your supplication to the Almighty, if you were pure and upright, surely now he would awake for you and prosper your rightful dwelling place. Not that God's sleeping or slumbering, but it's almost as if we need to pray in such a way that we would awaken him, you know? I mean, Psalm 44, verse 23, the Bible says, Awake, why do you sleep, O Lord? Arise, do not cast us off forever. He's writing this song and he's praying this prayer. And he's asking God to move on his behalf. Isaiah 51, 9 through 10 is a great passage. It says, Awake, awake, put on strength, O arm of the Lord. Awake, as in the ancient days and the generations of old. Are you not the arm that cut Rahab apart and wounded the serpent? Are you not the one who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep that made the depths of the sea a road for the redeemed to cross over? Yes, you are. Yes, you are the God who is able to defeat the enemy. You are the God who is able to lead us in the promised land. Lord, awake and move on my behalf. And he will. You know, sometimes, you know, we have people and it could be our kids and we want to wake them up, but, you know, we don't speak loud enough or we don't, you know, move them around a little bit or we don't pour water on them, whatever it takes to wake them up, you know. And God's saying, well, sometimes our prayers are like that too. 
And we need to pray in such a way that we would awaken, so to speak, the Almighty. We need to pray loud enough for our Lord to hear. But there's a balance. We shouldn't panic, right? Which is exactly what the disciples did. Again, looking at our text, we see first the plan, then the pride, then the problem, then the peace. We learn from all these things, but then the panic. In verse 38b, it says, And they awoke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Panic. It's, it's different than a cry of desperation. Panic has been defined as sudden uncontrollable fear or anxiety which causes unthinkable behavior and irrational conclusions. And that's what happened to these guys. You know, they, uh, they freaked out, right? They totally freaked out. Uh, they went off on Jesus and they went off in their theology, right? Because that's what panic does. It leads to bad behavior and bad beliefs. I mean, can you actually believe that they concluded that Jesus didn't care? Yeah, but look what I'm going through. God doesn't care for me. God died for you. God is constantly thinking about you. God knows every tear you cry, and He keeps them in a bottle. He knows every hair you have. He knows when we sit. He knows when we rise. And we can't escape His love and His presence. If we, even if we, we traveled the wings of the morning and traveled the speed of light, we could not escape His loving presence. They actually came to the conclusion that God doesn't care. You know, I pray we would never, ever let such a lie find a place in any of our thoughts or in any part of our heart because He cares passionately for us and He knows and cares about everything we're going through, everything, the, the largest thing, the thing that you might think is insignificant. I can pray for my dog. You know, and I know you guys might not care about my dog, but I, I love my dog. We pray for him. God answers prayers, no matter what the situation is. He cares passionately for us and everything we're going through. That's why Peter tells us to cast all our cares upon God, because he cares for us. The problem is, a lot of times, we don't cast all of them on him. I encourage you today, give it to God. Trust God. Cling to His promises. Remember what He said? All things work together for good. To those who love God and to those who are called according to His purpose. It doesn't say all things are good. I mean, you can isolate an incident because we live in a fallen world and fallen bodies against fallen angels. And you can isolate the incident and that right there is not good. But when you put it all together into the ingredients of God's hands, let me tell you something. The promise of God is true that He will work all things together for good. That's why when the most horrible thing happened in the history of the world, when Jesus Christ was nailed to a cross and crucified and bore our sins and experienced separation from His Father, the worst thing that could ever happen became the best thing that could ever happen because it was there that we were saved. 
so we cling to his promises and we find comfort in his presence. I mean, Jesus is with them. He's with us. And you want to know something? He said, I will never, ever leave you. Never. And sometimes we feel his presence and we sense his presence. Other times we don't. It doesn't matter how we feel. We don't walk by feelings. We walk by faith and we know the promise of God. And we cling to his promises and we find comfort in his presence. See, that's where these guys should have been. It's okay to pray. And it's okay to cry. Just don't panic in such a way that you would lose control of your actions or even, you know, fall into some type of theology that's not true, thinking that God doesn't care for you when in all reality you are the apple of his eye and he died for you. We see the plan, we see the pride, which leads to the problem, but Jesus had the peace, they had the panic, but God in his grace demonstrates the power. In verse 39 it says, And then he arose and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. Like I said, it's okay to pray. As a matter of fact, it's imperative that we pray. It's interesting. I like what David Guzik said. He said the wind didn't wake him. The disciples arguing and panicking didn't wake him. Water splashing over the boat didn't wake him. But at the cry from the heart of his disciples, he instantly awoke. And Jesus is like the mother who sleeps through all kinds of racket, but at the slightest noise from her little baby, she instantly awakes. See, that's how the Lord is. And when he awakens, he's not startled like us. I don't know about you guys, but have you ever been like sleeping, deep sleep, and someone wakes you up and you're like, you know, half, you know, functioning? No, he's not like that. He rises and instantly rebukes the wind, the waves. As I mentioned earlier, some say it was a natural phenomenon. I disagree, though. I think for a few reasons it was the enemy. And it's interesting, Jesus uses the same words when he rebukes demons throughout his ministry. You know, he rebuked the winds. Think about that. He rebuked the winds and the waves and undoubtedly the demonic forces behind those winds and the waves. I mean, it's important for us to know that Satan does have a, a, a sphere of influence even on the storms of life, uh, not just emotionally, spiritually, but also physically. We know the enemy has the capacity to affect nature. Uh, for example, in Job chapter 1, verse 19, the Bible says that Satan moved against Job, and we read that suddenly a great wind came from across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house. And so Satan is able to make the wind suddenly blow, right? That's one reason we believe it's demonic, because of the fact that Jesus rebuked the winds and the waves. Not only that, it's interesting how Jesus tells a storm to be silent. You know, he doesn't say stop, he says be quiet. Literally, in the Greek language, he says, put a muzzle on it and keep it on. And what we find, you guys, is that Satan was roaring. Satan was screaming. He was making noise. He was lying in the storm. It's interesting that Peter calls Satan a roaring lion. 
in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8. And at the end of the day, I think it's vital to know that he makes all that noise with lies. He's more of a, a lying lion. And we need to make sure that we do not believe his lies. And so Jesus silences Satan and in the process demonstrates his omnipotent power. You know, I remember one night, and I, I, I think I told you guys this a while back, when I first became a Christian, I remember one night, it was in the middle of the night, I don't want to say two, three in the morning, and I, I was getting some rest, and suddenly I was awakened by a dog that was barking. And, uh, you know, I mean, it just kept barking, like forever and ever, and it wouldn't stop. And, uh, you know, uh, I thought about doing what Craig did. What he does, he puts sleeping pills in a, in a hot dog, and he threw it over the neighbor's... Uh, but I, I did it. I, uh, I just prayed. Believe it or not, I remember. I'm like, man, this, Lord, I, I can't get, I can't sleep, and this dog is just barking, making all this noise. Lord, please help this dog to stop. And as the word rolled off my lips, instantly there was a silence that was so loud and there was a presence that flooded my room I was overwhelmed and and you know this is the God that we serve not only is he able to suddenly silence the storms and the winds and the waves of life but you know to me it's almost even greater to think that he would hear the prayer of a peon like me and care so much that he would just show himself strong to me in a way that is, has been absolutely unforgettable. God hears your prayers, no matter how big or small they are, and he hears them instantly. That's the God that we serve. You know, Satan comes and he tries to roar with all his storms they're just lies and you and I have a choice at that juncture in time whether or not we will believe and live the lie of Lucifer or we will possess the promises of God you know Satan can't devour you unless you believe his lies he can bark but he can't bite we have to make sure that we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ You know, one last reason I think this was demonic is because we'll see next time we study together in chapter 5 that the whole reason Jesus is going to cross the lake is because there's two men that are demon-possessed that he wants to go and set free. Just so beautiful, huh? The way of our Lord. And so we see the plan, the pride, the problem, the peace, the panic, and then the power and then there's the probing. Look at verse 40. He said to them, why are you so fearful? He's asking them a question, searching their hearts. Why are you so fearful? How is it that you have no faith? You know, for us as Christians, the only fear that should ever be here is the fear of God. 
right? I mean, they had his promise. They were going to the other side. You know, even if one day, and you know, this might happen if we're facing death square in the face. You know, the Lord promised he would be with us in the valley of the shadow of death. And remember that that is just a shadow of death. It's just a shadow. If we're ever there facing death square in the face and you hear those words or you're on your deathbed, something's happening, it's just a shadow of death because the Christian never dies. We have nothing to fear. The only fear that should ever be here is the fear of God. It's vital that we have faith and not fear. And this is one of the reasons I believe that Jesus led them into a storm, really to, to test their faith or to reveal their faith. And have you ever heard that saying, a faith that's not tested cannot be trusted? You and I, we say we have faith, but what will happen when you're facing death? What will happen when you perhaps, and it's such a, a difficult place to be, you're facing the death of a loved one. I was uh, thinking about a conversation I was having with a, with a dear brother. And I remember so much about this conversation. It was one of those things in my life that just stands out as an altar for me. And he was you know, telling me about the situation of his loved one. And it didn't look like his loved one was going to make it through. And, and he was so strong, so strong. He, he was heartbroken, don't get me wrong, but he was strong in his faith. And he knew where his loved one would be. That right there, that's a testimony. I have never been there. I have not crossed that bridge. And you and I, a lot of us here, some of you have, most of us haven't. But it's there in that place when we find out whether or not you really have faith. And so when they're facing it, they think they're going to die. The truth is revealed. Even though they had been with Jesus, they had been doing all these things, and it was so nice to see the way they served, involved in ministry, heavily involved. When the rubber met the road and they were there facing this calamity in their life, it was then that their faith was revealed, and in all reality, they had little faith. That's what Jesus said. And so why would the Lord want to reveal that to them? To beat them up? To condemn them? Absolutely not. To lift them up and to say, you know, your faith needs to grow. And it would. And they would go out and they would follow Christ, and God would use them to change the world. Maybe you're here today and you've had a lapse of faith and, and, and hopefully you're encouraged to know that you're not alone. That even the disciples themselves, after all the miracles that they had seen and been eyewitnesses of firsthand, even they had lapses of faith. And God worked in them in such a powerful way. God can do the same with us.
And words be said, Jesus did not stop with the calming of the elements, for the greatest danger was not the wind or the waves, it was the unbelief in the hearts of the disciples. Our greatest problems are within us, not around us. David Guzik said the storm could not disturb Jesus, but the unbelief of his disciples did. See, we got to be a people who believe which then leads to the person. We see in verse 41, And they feared exceedingly and said to one another, Who can this be that even the wind and the sea obey him? If I could say this, this is the lesson of this whole account. Although it is practical in application in so many other ways, At the end of the day, the revelation is that this is none other than God. That's the most important thing that we walk away with. That the one who, you know, came and was born that Christmas night and grew and then was here for three and a half years as an itinerant preacher, the one who was nailed to a cross for our sins was the same one who calmed the storm by the power of his word, simply saying, peace, be still. They knew that. We should know this. This is God with us. You know, who but God can make the raging wind and and sea obey a word? It's interesting, in the span of only a few moments, the disciples saw the complete humanity of Jesus followed by the complete deity of Jesus. I mean, who can calm the sea? I want to take you guys to a few scriptures. Let's go to Psalm 89. Mark, Mark. And if you go to Psalm 89. Look what the Bible says. Speaking of God, speaking of Jehovah God, Yahweh, he says in verse 9, You rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. It's, it's the Lord who does that, right? I mean, if you go over to Psalm 93, look at verse 4. It says, The Lord on high is mightier than the noise of many waters, than the mighty waves of the sea. If you go over to Psalm 104, in verse 6, it says, You covered it with the deep as with a garment. The waters stood above the mountains. At your rebuke, it's interesting, there's that word rebuke, they fled. At the voice of your thunder, they hastened away. They went up over the mountains. They went down into the valleys to the place which you founded for them. You have set a boundary that they may not pass over, that they may not return to cover the earth. In Psalm 107, if you go to verse 29, it says, He calms the storm so that its waves are still. Interesting. You know, Nahum chapter 1 verse 4 talks about God rebuking the sea. And, and what, they, what they see, and it's, it's just absolutely 100% biblically 
theologically correct is that only God can do this. And it's an affirmation of his deity. Knowing closing, if Jesus knew they would experience a storm, why did he allow them, even lead them into it? You know, there are a lot of people like that. Say, if God was God, then why does he allow suffering? Why does he allow tragedy? Why do we experience calamity? But it's important for us to know that we live in a fallen world, and although he doesn't author evil, he allows it. And what he does is he uses it for his glory. I mean, why did they experience this storm? And as I said earlier, there are multiple reasons uh, to expose their pride, to expose the fact that they had little faith and needed to grow in that, to reveal himself to them and his glory. And, and like I said earlier, to reach demon-possessed men who were on the other side, all those things. So many things God does through our troubles. You know, I thank God for the perfect storms he sends our way because he does all this and so much more. I'm reminded of that passage in Isaiah 43. The Bible says, Thus says the Lord who created you, O Jacob, and he who formed you, O Israel, Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by your name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, nor shall the flame scorch you, for I am the Lord, your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. You know, if you've accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you can cling to that promise, no matter what the waters may be, no matter what the fire is. But Satan will come and he'll, he'll roar and the waves and the wind will beat against your life. It's just his lies trying to take you away from Jesus. Let me close real quick. I, my wife, uh, she told me about, I don't know if you guys knew how, uh, how Kay Smith got saved. You guys know who Kay Smith is, right? She's the wife of the late Pastor Chuck Smith. And uh, I guess when she was about 19 years old, she was at a carnival. She was there with her friends, and, um, and she went to one of the booths where there was a fortune teller, a fortune teller. Now, let me tell you guys this. These fortune tellers, these palm readers, they're straight from the devil, straight from hell. I want to encourage you guys to stay as far away from there as you can because you are dancing with demons when you go to stuff like that. But she did at 19 years old. And when she was waiting in line, uh, uh, the fortune teller, she was uh, listening to the previous uh, couple in front of her. And I guess the fortune teller was telling them, you're going to have a wonderful life. And, you know, all these good things are going to happen to you. And boom, boom, boom. It was just a, a wonderful prognosis of their future. And, uh, and so she was kind of excited to, to see what the fortune teller would, would tell her. Now, keep in mind, this is a demon speaking through someone. And so when she saw Kay Smith, uh, Cheryl was saying that it was almost like she was horrified. And she looked at Kay and she said, your life will amount to nothing. It's futile. It's vain. And it was just like a total prediction of nothing good. 
It was, it was crazy. So, you know, Kay, she walked away from there, obviously very discouraged. But, but God used that because then she kind of said, well, if my life is going to be so bad, maybe I should give my life to Jesus. So what happened was her aunt then called her and was talking to her mom and said, I think Kay should go to this young adult uh, camp. And, and she went. And at the age of 20 years old, she accepted Jesus Christ as her Lord and Savior. Uh, she then began to attend Bible college. And a year later, she met Pastor Chuck Smith. Six weeks later, they were married, which I would say that's too short of a courting period, but <laughs> God knows. <laughs> and then, you know, he started pastoring when they graduated from college. And if you guys remember the story, it was Kay. It was Kay who, who told Chuck, I want to meet a hippie. I'm, I'm something about them. I want, I want to meet a hippie. I want to get to know them. I want them to get to know Jesus. Now, Chuck's mentality was, you know, dirty hippies, get a job. <laughs> Put some shoes on. Cut your hair. But it was Kay. It was Kay that God used. Next thing you know, I mean, God began to move in such a powerful way. Millions and millions and millions of people came to know Jesus Christ. And here's the thing. If she had listened to the winds and the waves and the roaring lion who lied to her, if she would have believed and lived the lie of Lucifer, she would have never discovered the truth of how God wanted to use her life. And for us, it's the same thing. No matter who you are, no matter what you're going through, God loves you, died for you. Believe that. Live that. Embrace that. Don't believe the lies of the enemy. And as we do exercise that faith, it's going to be so wonderful to see what God will do as he takes us to the other side.